Uh, Mark chapter 9, I want to talk today for just a few minutes about faith and how the Christian life is progressive. It's not, it's not static. It doesn't stand still, and we should be making uh, progress. One of the areas of which we should progress, even as, as Christians, is our faith. Uh, not, just, um, not just saying things about faith, but also actions to go along with it. So Mark chapter 9, it's really, though it focuses on the transfiguration of Jesus, the lesson really becomes one of faith. Let me begin reading in verse 1. And he said to them, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. After six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John with him and led them up on a high mountain where they were all alone. There he was transfigured before them. His clothes became dazzling white, whiter than anyone in the world could bleach them. And there appeared before them Elijah and Moses who were talking with Jesus. Peter said to Jesus, Rabbi, it is good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you one for Moses and one for Elijah. He did not know what to say. They were so frightened. Then a cloud appeared and enveloped them, and a voice came from the cloud, This is my son whom I love. Listen to him. Suddenly when they looked around, they no longer saw anyone with them except Jesus. As they were coming down the mountain, Jesus gave them orders not to tell anyone what they had seen until the Son of Man had risen from the dead. They kept the matter to themselves, discussing what rising from the dead meant. And they asked, Why do the teachers of the law say Elijah must come first? Jesus replied, To be sure, Elijah does come first and restores all things. Why then is it written that the Son of Man must suffer much and be rejected? But I tell you, Elijah has come, and they have done to him everything they wish, just as it was written about him. When they came to the other disciples, they saw a large crowd around them and the teachers of the law arguing with them. As soon as, as soon as all the people saw Jesus, they were overwhelmed with wonder and ran to greet him. What are you arguing about with them about, he asked. A man in the crowd answered, Teacher, I brought you my son who is possessed by a spirit that has robbed him of speech. Whenever it seizes him, it throws him to the ground. He foams at the mouth, gnashes his teeth, and becomes rigid. I asked your disciples to drive out the spirit, but they could not. O unbelieving generation, Jesus replied, how long shall I stay with you? How long shall I put up with you? Bring the boy to me. So they brought him. When the spirit saw Jesus, it immediately threw the boy into a convulsion. He fell to the ground and rolled around, foaming at the mouth. Jesus asked the boy's father, how long has he been like this? From childhood, he answered, it has often thrown him into fire or water to kill him. But if you can do anything, take pity on us and help us. If you can, said Jesus, Everything is possible for him who believes. Immediately the boy's father exclaimed, I do believe. Help me in my unbelief. When Jesus saw that a crowd was running to the scene, he rebuked the evil spirit. You deaf and mute spirit, he said, I command you, come out of him and never enter him again. The spirit shrieked, convulsed him violently, and came out. The boy looked so much like a corpse that many said he's dead, but Jesus took him by the hand and lifted him to his feet, and he stood up. After Jesus had gone indoors, his disciples asked him privately, why couldn't we drive it out? And he replied, this kind can come out only by prayer. Then they left that place, they left that place and passed through Galilee. Jesus did not want anyone to know where they were because he was teaching his disciples. He said to them, the Son of Man is coming to be betrayed into the hands of men, 
They will kill him, and after three days he will rise. But they did not understand what he meant and were afraid afraid to ask him about it. In the first eight chapters, well, Mark has 16 chapters. It's the briefest of the four gospel accounts, but it's laid out in the most chronologically ordered way. Sometimes they would write like John would write thematically. And so he might get on a theme and tell several things that happened, though they didn't happen in that sequence, he would put them in that theme. Mark is sequential that he begins at the beginning and he just goes through. It's it's chronological. Mark is my favorite of the four Gospels, maybe because it's the briefest, but it's a simple structure also to understand. The first eight chapters deal with all of the life and ministry that Mark records of Jesus up to the last two weeks. And then the second half of the entire book, chapters 9 through 16, deal with the last two weeks of Jesus' life and ministry on earth. And so when we get into chapter 9, we're in those last, we're in those last two weeks. Now, I think it's no accident that what happens on the heels of Jesus for the previous several chapters telling people they they call to discipleship, to deny him, or to deny themselves, take up their cross and follow him. That's at the end of chapter 8. And he says, whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses it for my sake will gain it. Even the disciples are, are somewhat stunned. At the, at the severity of the message that Jesus is giving and how serious this is. So we come to chapter 9, and I don't think it's any accident that this happens right on the heels of some very hard, difficult things that Jesus had been saying. So what's the purpose behind it, uh, this account of the transfiguration? Why does, why does Jesus allow these disciples to see what takes place, and why does God bring this about? Mark tells us it was six days. Now, that's significant. Six days take place between verses 1 and 2. And it's significant because of what verse 1 says when Jesus said, I tell you the truth, some who are standing here will not taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power. We truly believe what he was saying is now going to be fulfilled. That that statement about they will not see... taste death before they see the kingdom of God come with power, that the transfiguration that now is going to take place starting in in verse 2 is the fulfillment of that, that this is the appearance of the kingdom of God coming with power. Jesus picks Peter and James and John. Uh, We know among the 12 disciples they were kind of the inner circle. Uh, We're never told exactly why, but Peter, James, and John saw some things, heard some things that the other disciples did not. Perhaps they were the ones most ready to understand and accept the truth. We don't know. Uh, We know that they were among the first that he called to follow him as disciples. Uh, They were there with Jesus when he prayed in the Garden of Gethsemane several days after this. So he leads, verse 2 tells us he leads them up on, it's either Mount Tabor or Mount Hermon, but it's a higher elevation The parallel passage in Luke 9 tells us that he took them up there to pray. From what I read, the climb would have taken the better part of a day. Uh, Mount Hermon is the mountain in Palestine. It's 9,000 feet above sea level. They say on a clear day, you can see the uh, snow-clad slopes from all over the land. From Jerusalem to the city of Tyre, you can can see the top of that, that mountain. So that's where they go. 
And I think at this point the disciples needed to be encouraged. They needed some good news after what seemed to be some bad news. Because just as I mentioned a moment ago, six days earlier at the end of chapter 8, he had clearly communicated the cross and his coming suffering and death. And they had been with him now about two years. Jesus was a year into his public ministry before he called his disciples to follow him. Sometimes we'll say the disciples were with him all during his three-and-a-half-year ministry. No, he was a year into it before he called the disciples. So they'd been with him, though, at least a couple of years. And they had heard him preach, and they had heard him teach, and they had witnessed miracles, and they had participated in some of those. And Peter had rebuked Jesus in the previous chapter. In chapter 8, Peter had rebuked him. And, and uh, when Jesus had communicated that he was going to die, and what did Jesus say back to him? Get behind me, Satan. He strongly re- rejected what Peter was saying, is that the words Peter was saying and the intent was from the devil himself. So he had communicated that he's going to die. Their expectations had been, been shattered. This was completely out of sync with what they were expecting from the Messiah. They were still thinking in terms of a political king, someone who would break the back of the Romans, their oppressors. Their security was threatened. Someone with whom you are close, and several of you have been through this, someone, maybe a spouse, maybe a a child, maybe a, a parent, and, and they, when they first gave you the news that they were going to, die, you know, they had a serious disease or serious condition, and maybe you didn't acknowledge it at that time, but your security was threatened because you were very concerned about what's going to happen. Their future was in doubt. If that's going to happen to him, the one they had been following, what's that say about it's going to happen to them? So all I'm trying to say is, I believe they were probably very discouraged by the time we get to chapter 9 because of what had taken place just days before. Do you ever get discouraged with the truth? I don't think at this point they would have been discouraged over any sin they committed. Maybe Peter thought, I shouldn't have said what I said. You know, that's a pretty strong rebuke from Christ himself, get behind me, Satan. But their discouragement is, is from apparently understanding what Jesus had said. They needed encouragement. So Luke, not in Mark, but as we add to this, Luke tells us they went up to pray. He also says in, uh, in his account in chapter 9 of Luke that they were very sleepy, and apparently they dozed off. And when they open their eyes, they are met with a sight that no one was expecting, something like they'd never seen before. As, as I read to you earlier, he was transfigured before them. His garments became radiant and exceedingly white, as one translation puts it, as no launderer on earth can, can whiten them. Now, do you realize the Bible rarely mentions color? Now, it mentions it from time to time, but typically when you read through the Gospels, color is not mentioned. Uh, when we think of biblical illustrations, and maybe if we've seen movies that are depicting biblical times... Uh, we think they wore white, but from what I've read, white was rarely worn because it was so easily soiled. Um, so their their robes and the clothes, the everyday clothes, were probably you know dark colored or a variety of other colors, but most likely not white. So here, though, they stress how white the appearance of Jesus was, 
when they awaken their eyes, uh, when they awaken, they open their eyes and they see him. Now, we know that light and whiteness in the Bible uh, communicates and stresses purity, a holiness. But this glory apparently enveloped his body, even his clothes, and he's got a heavenly brilliance. What they see is Jesus with a heavenly brilliance uh, coming from him. What a spectacle. As bright as lightning. Matthew tells us in his account that Jesus' face shone like the sun. Sounds like science fiction, doesn't it? Something you'd see on a movie, a special effect. But his face shone like the sun. And so we use the word that he was transfigured. Another word for it, or literally, he was was metamorphosized. Uh, That is a change on the outside that comes from a change on the inside. Uh, A masquerade is when you just put something on the outside, like a costume, but nothing's changed on the inside. A metamorphosis is when there's a change on the inside and it manifests itself on the outside. That's what's happening here with Jesus. I like to think of it this way. This is my way of putting it, and I'm sure it's very problematic. But I view that for a moment, his humanity was veiled back and they got a glimpse of his divinity. It's not as though he changed it before them from a man to God. He was already the God-man. But they were able, in sense, peeled back and they were able to see the essence of what he truly was. The glory which was always in his depths rose, you might say, to the surface for this one time in his earthly life. Or to put it this way, he slipped back into eternity to his pre-human glory. It was a glance back and a look forward also to his future glory. So they were getting a glimpse of what Jesus really was and what he would become with a glorified body. You've got to keep in mind, I think they would have been discouraged when he took them up there. Is this a picture of defeat? No, this was a glimpse of, of the future. He's giving them a visible image of his deity. It was a taste of his infinite glory. Now, don't miss this. And what they would later receive. Often we, I don't think we make that latter connection. He is letting them see what they also will receive later. Peter, James, and John would hold on to this moment. It was their comfort, their hope in the darkness... John, later when he writes the Gospel of John in chapter 1, he said, We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son. In their writings, Peter also would refer back to this. They referred to what they saw on the mountain of transfiguration. Okay, let me move on. Verse 4 tells us something also. If that wasn't unusual enough, now it really gets unusual because two long-deceased Old Testament saints, followers of God, appear. Moses and Elijah, and they're talking with Jesus. Now, there are lots of unanswered questions I have. How do they know it's Moses and Elijah? I mean, they didn't have photographs. I mean, you know, I'm not, I'm not trying to be funny. I just want, when I read this, how did they? Well, they, they knew. They knew this was Moses and this was Elijah. Both of these men had previously conversed with God on mountaintops. Moses at Mount Sinai, Elijah on Mount Horeb. Both of these men had been shown God's glory. Both of these men had made, you might say, famous departures from earth. 
Moses died on Mount Nebo. God had buried him in a grave known only to himself. Elijah was taken up in a chariot of fire. But primarily, I believe this, and this is what most of what I read uh, have said, Moses was the great lawgiver. Elijah was the great prophet. And so it's only fitting that now, with Christ, the fulfillment of the law, the fulfillment of the prophecy, all of this is coming together now in Jesus Christ. He was the fulfillment of all of this. So this is, as one writer said, the ultimate summary of the Old Testament economy. The whole thing is coming together now at this very moment. Luke tells us what they were talking about. Luke says they spoke about his departure, which he was about to bring to fulfillment in Jerusalem. They were talking about his death that would follow in a few days. They were talking about his resurrection. What an amazing sight, dazzling light. Jesus standing, talking to Moses who'd been dead for 1,400 years and Elijah who'd been dead for 900 years. When I was working on this, I, I thought, what was happening in world history 1,400 years ago? What was happening? That's what, 600? Does anybody even know? That's the Middle Ages. Nothing happened, right? From 500 to 1,500, nothing happened, right? I'm, that's a joke. That's how I mean, apparently a lot of stuff, but we tend to talk about the Dark Ages. Apparently a lot of great things happened during those times that we don't even know about. But that was a long time ago. All right, here's what Peter said later, or at that time, verse 5. Rabbi, it's good for us to be here. Let us put up three shelters, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. I like Garrison Keeler. I think he's a very witty, witty person. I remember hearing him say, I just keep talking until I think of something to say. <laughs> well, that seems to be what happened right at that moment. Peter, uh, I guess he's trying to be courteous and honorable. Uh, Bible commentators read into all sorts of things, what these three little houses would represent. Some think Peter's motive was to bring about the promised glory now and therefore avoid the suffering. I just think he wanted to retain the moment. I just think he wanted to freeze time at that, at that point. Because I think when things are going well, we often want to capture the moment. We want to stay right there, and we don't want to leave that particular time. Barbara and I have five children. We have seven grandchildren. We just skipped over three, four, and five. I mean, we went from like three to seven a few weeks ago, it seemed like. Um, our second daughter is married and lives in Texas, but she, I don't know if Sarah's ever lived outside of a world of imagination. In, you know, some kids have an imagination. She every once in a while would check out of her imagination into reality for a few moments and then immediately would go, would go right back. And I, I remember on Sunday nights after church here, I, I guess I shouldn't say this, I had a car that eventually tore up because of what I'm getting ready to tell you. I would usually leave, we'd think about, one of the things that saved our marriage is me being a pastor. That meant that we could drive separate cars to church and I could get here on time. <laughs> anyway, so I had to be here usually early for meetings, but I don't know if our marriage would have survived if I had not been in the ministry for that reason. My wife feels a minute early is a minute wasted. You know, I mean, anywhere. It's like, and she, she's probably right, let me say it, but. So we'd have two cars at church, and I remember I'd, I'd pull up, and then the kids would realize what was happening. I'd go up 
Mulberry, and then I'd turn by the Methodist church. And, you know, you go down, there used to be a liquor store on the left, and there's a, there's a bump. There's a paint store. If you timed it right, the car would get airborne when you hit that bump. So I had this old Mazda. <laughs> and the minute I'd make that turn and they'd see me slow down waiting, I could judge when the light was going to change because, you know, it would turn yellow on the right side. And then I could... And so... Sarah and I did that. We would do it almost every day. Well, that day she didn't have a seatbelt on. Her head hit the ceiling, you know, when we went. But they just laughed. They talked about that. Well, Sarah and I went on down. It's just the two of us, and we made a turn, and the muffler fell off the car in the intersection. Uh, let's see, where the Burger King, and uh, th- there were different things. Well, right, and all of a sudden the car goes, you know how loud they get when the muffler comes. And her eyes got big and looked at me, and I, she said, what happened? I went, oh, I looked in the rearview mirror. We lost our muffler. And she looked at me, and she looked in front, and she looked at me, and she said, we lost our mother? (laughs) Well, one night we were watching the sound of music, the sound of music, and the scene where, uh, ah, my name goes out on, this isn't my notes, but if there's any doubt, I'll just clear that up. Uh, Colonel Von Trapp, okay, Colonel Von Trapp, you know, and Julie Andrews comes along and straightens him out, and so he... The kids are all playing in the trees. Remember, they're, they're playing, and he's coming back with the woman he's engaged to. And, you know, who are those kids? They're driving in the car, and they're playing in the trees. They're swinging on the rope out into the water. And Well, right about after that scene, we had to put the kids to bed. Well, we get Sarah to bed, and she starts going, crying in tears. What's wrong? I want to be in the movie. I want to be in the movie. I want to, I want to swing on the swing. I want to jump in the I want to do all that. She was talking about that scene from the movie that she had just watched. She didn't want to leave that scene. Well, I I kind of think, I think that's what Peter was saying. Oh, it's so good for us to be here. Let's build three things right here and let's do that. But the response back is from the Father. This is my beloved Son. Listen to Him. Years later, Peter, when he wrote 2 Peter chapter 1, he says this. We did not follow cleverly invented stories when we told you about the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what he's talking about, eyewitnesses of his majesty. For he received honor and glory from God the Father when the voice came to him from the majestic glory saying, This is my Son whom I love, with him I am well pleased. We ourselves heard that came from heaven when we were with him on the sacred mountain. So when you read 2 Peter, years after the fact, he's referring back. What an impression was made on Peter, James, and John. Jesus is the ultimate expression of truth. Peter, James, and John were to listen to what Jesus said about his necessary death and their embracing the paradox of the cross. So I want to ask you, if you're discouraged, for whatever reason, uh, and and you're discouraged before the Lord, think about his glory. Think about uh, what awaits you if your trust is in him, if your faith is in him. The non-Christian, the unbeliever, really has nothing to hold on to except this life. We criticize people for living for the here and now, but if they aren't believers, that's all they have. That's, that's all, if you don't, if your faith isn't in Christ, then this is, you want to hold on to your youth. You want to hold on to your health. You want to just grasp it and not let it go because it's all you have. 
the believer knows there's more. Um, it's been years since Frank Barker was here to preach. I don't know if Frank ever spoke at this Wednesday luncheon, except maybe once when he spoke at a missions conference. But many of us know here Frank was uh, kind of my uh, long-distance pastor as I was growing up. He pastored Browood, founded and pastored Browood Presbyterian Church in Birmingham for many, many years, and uh, had an influence on many of us. And uh, when Frank was was here on a, a Sunday evening uh, before our missions conference a few years ago, I asked him to tell about a, uh, an event he had told some of us about, that there was a man uh, sometime before who had been very sick and uh, in the hospital, and Frank had gone by to see him. This was not a man who professed to be a Christian. I don't know if he had any connections with Barwood Presbyterian Church. I don't think he did, but Frank went by to see him and, and, and had the opportunity to talk to him about the gospel. Um, in, in fact, the, the man's uh, wife didn't want any preachers to go by to see him kind of guarded the door. So Frank had a friend that came up and said, look, I want you to go up and you talk to this man, and I'm going to distract the wife. <laughs> when I get her around the corner, you go in the room and talk to the man. <laughs> so that's what happened. Uh, so the guy went and got the wife. I guess they went to get a cup of coffee at the cafeteria, and Frank slipped in. and Anyway, he presented the gospel to him. About the time he finished, another man came in, and this had been one of his... Uh, hell-raising buddies, for lack of a better term. And this guy said, hey, when you get out of the hospital, man, we're going to go. We're going to pick up where we left off. I'm going to buy the booze, and we're going to do all this. And the man was just stunned because he knew he wasn't getting out of the hospital, and everybody knew that. And he, he was going to die in that hospital. And he said, do you know what's wrong with me? He said, yeah, I know what the doctor's saying, but that isn't true. When we get out, we're going to pick up where we left off. All he had to offer was what the sinful habits that they had participated in before. No hope. And Frank was standing there said it could not have been more of a contrast than what he and I had been talking about than what this friend was talking about. So, well, the guy left, and Frank said, would you like to put your faith in Christ? He said, you better believe I would. Well, right, praise received Christ or whatever happened at that very moment. And then, then the, the man and the wife came in. <laughs> and the, uh, the man in the, the bed said, honey, uh, this is Frank Barker. He's a pastor. He's going to do my funeral. Frank said, I did, a week later, like that. Well, when, when we are discouraged for whatever reason, um, even if it's just discouraged in our obedience to Christ or the hard parts of it, think about his glory. Think about the glory of God. I'm out, I'm, I'm out of time. I, I want to read you one little thing I wrote years ago. Um, it was at the first anniversary of our, our son, his first birthday, uh, after our disabled son was born. And I was out washing the car, and this was a few days before it, and I was washing the car one afternoon. It's not the car I tore up down there. It was another car. <laughs> and um, I was, you know, there's a sense of dread when you're coming up to a one-year anniversary of something bad that's happened. And I was thinking about that, and while I was washing the car, I just had some thoughts. I went back in, sat at, in the house, sat at the computer, and I wrote out what I'm going to read to you. And I put it in our church newsletter uh, four or five times since then, since it's been 14 years. But uh, this has been true, continues to be true with me, and here's what I wrote. Anniversaries are typically happy occasions. They are great opportunities to celebrate so many years of marriage, years on a job, years since you met that special person, or so many months or years since you reached that lofty goal. But some anniversaries are sad. We usually do not send cards or flowers, make dinner reservations, or buy sentimental gifts for those days. Often we don't even speak of them. 
Often we face them alone. These other anniversaries are typically dreaded. They are the days we commemorate difficult and painful times, the death of a loved one, the loss of a child, the date of that terrible accident which changed your life. This coming Friday will be a day of mixed emotions for me and Barbara. It will be a happy time, but an emotional anniversary as well. It will be our son Stephen's first birthday. Our family loves Stephen deeply. He's one of God's most precious gifts to us, but through him we have experienced immense pain as well. We will celebrate his birthday with gifts, cake, one candle, laughter, and before it's all over, I'm sure there will be many sorrowful tears as well. There already have been. Norman Wright, who's the kind of the godfather or grandfather of Christian counseling in America, Norman Wright has helped me to understand why this is so. I was reading his book entitled Recovering from the Losses of Life this morning, and he writes that the one-year anniversary of a major loss is often almost as difficult as the actual event itself. I've been surprised to find much truth to that idea. The pretty weather, the blooming trees, and the colors of the season are all vivid reminders of one year ago when everything looked, smelled, and felt the same the day Stephen was born. These memories include much hurt. Do you observe sad anniversaries? There's definitely a place for such. It's not unchristian to grieve. Over the past 11 years, that'd be 25 years now, I've watched many of you go through terrible trials. I'm keenly aware of how many broken hearts are present every Sunday when I stand in the pulpit. Ecclesiastes says there's a time to weep and a time to mourn. 1 Thessalonians says as Christians we grieve but not as those without hope. So let us feel the pain and disappointment and bitter taste of the trials of this life, but let us grieve in Christ with faith and hope and assurance. And may we recognize, and this is what I want you to see. This is a verse from Romans, but I think it's stating what is seen in the transfiguration. May we recognize that the sufferings of this present time are not worthy to be compared with the glory that is to be revealed to us. The glory revealed to us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for that glory that Christ revealed uh, there to Peter, James, and John. We pray that we might, having not seen it at this stage yet, also be encouraged by it as it tells us about what awaits in the future. In Jesus' name, amen.